Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Richard Turley is the Managing Director of the Church Public Affairs Department. He was previously an Assistant Church Historian, Recorder, and the Managing Director of the Church History Department. He's written extensively on the Mountain Meadows Massacre, including Massacre at Mountain Meadows with Glenn Leonard and Ronald Walker, and the recently released Mountain Meadows Massacre, Collected Legal Papers with co-editors Janice Johnson and LeJean Carruth. What keeps bringing you back to this topic? When we were working on the very first volume that I published on this subject, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, an American Tragedy, my co-authors, Ronald W. Walker, Glenn M. Leonard, and I, and the staff who were assisting us, did research in 31 states in the District of Columbia. And we gathered together a massive amount of material, over 50 linear feet of shelf space required to store it all. And so in discovering all of this information, we very quickly recognized that we were dealing with an abundance of riches when it came to material. And so in the first narrative volume that we wrote on the subject, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, we put a note in the preface that this book would tell only half the story, leaving the rest for another day. And I'm currently co-authoring a second narrative volume that we hope to have turned into the publisher by the end of this year. My co-author on that one is Barbara Jones-Brown. And I think it's an equally interesting volume. To support that second volume, which deals with events from the massacre itself to the trials and execution of John D. Lee, and then beyond, there's a concluding portion that talks about the lives of the major players and what happens to these people after John D. Lee's death. In order to prepare for that volume, we had to have a firm hold on what occurred from a legal standpoint with John D. Lee. I have educational background and some experience as a lawyer, and so I have a particular interest in this legal background. So years ago, as we explained in the introduction to the legal documents volumes, we decided to try to get a grip on what all of the legal documents were and what they said. As is the case with so many of the documents related to the Mount Meadows Massacre, the legal documents proved to be particularly difficult. There were a couple of transcripts, one purported to be a transcript of John D. Lee's trials that was made by a church reporter, Josiah Rogerson, and there was a second transcript of the trials that was supposedly made at the request of the trial judge and created by one of the official court reporters. What we discovered as we went through these two transcripts was that they weren't what they purported to be. They were, in fact, not created for the purposes of the trial or an appeal, but, in fact, were created for other purposes. The Borman transcript, so-called, was prepared at the request of the judge for the purpose of writing a book about the trial. And it has a very complex history. It's very, very complicated in terms of who produced it and what sources were used to produce it. The so-called Rogerson transcript was not just a simple, straightforward recitation of the trial. This was a set of trial 
minutes and materials that was severely edited by Josiah Rogerson and then sold to church leaders. So that led to our project to create the Legal Documents volumes. And then during the process of writing Massacre at Mount Meadows, we became aware that Juanita Brooks had requested materials from the church that she had never acquired, and we became aware of where those materials were. And so we made a commitment at that time that we would find those materials, use them in the process of publishing our book, and then make them available to the public. So Ron Walker and I published another volume called Mount Meadows Massacre, the Andrew Jensen and David H. Morris collections. And in there, we published full-color images of all the documents that Juanita Brooks tried to get but was unable to get, as well as transcriptions of all of those. So it's just that the project is so complicated, it necessitates a lot of publications. I think most members of the church are aware of the Mountain Meadows massacres, probably some to more of a degree than others. I did an informal survey of people in my household from my 15-year-old to my husband to see what they knew, and it varied greatly. So could you briefly give us an overview of the Mountain Meadows Massacre? Sure. 1857 was the year in which the Utah War began. The Utah War was a tension between the federal government in Washington and the Utah Territorial Militia under the direction of Utah's Territorial Governor Brigham Young. There were a lot of things that contributed to this tension, this war, and the events leading up to it have been nicely chronicled in a two-volume work by William P. McKinnon called At Swords Point. So for people who are really interested in the Utah War, I would recommend that two-volume set. To make a long story short, these tensions were in part a result of the historical background of Latter-day Saints living in Utah who had had bad experiences in what we now call Midwestern United States with soldiers, particularly local militia groups that attacked them, drove them, killed them, and robbed them of their possessions and abused women. When they became aware that a federal army was marching to Utah, that became a particularly threatening piece of news to them when they found out that the man who was leading the army at, the, at that time, which was William S. Harney, was the leader because he had a reputation for being quite violent. And so I, I think the one piece of news that really triggered the concern on the part of church leaders was Harney's leadership. Later on, Latter-day Saints would often call this federal military expedition Johnston's army, but Albert Sidney Johnston was not appointed to lead it until several months later. So the concern about an army led by William S. Harney coming to Utah created a lot of heartburn and led to an increasing resistance on the part of church leaders in their roles as civic leaders at the time to this idea of an army entering the territory. Most extralegal violence that has occurred during the history of our church has occurred during periods of war. The so-called Mormon-Missouri War of 1838 was a time of atrocities such as the Hans Mill Massacre, and there were others. The Utah War was also a time of extra-legal violence. And the Mountain Meadows Massacre of September 1857 was the worst of the extra-legal violence, but not the only violence, that occurred during this Utah War period. To put it very, very succinctly, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which 
primarily occurred between September 7th and September 11th, 1857, was an extra-legal mass killing, as this type of violence is called among violence historians. It was a mass killing by Southern Utah men of around 120 men, women, and children who were part of a wagon train that was moving from Arkansas and members of other locations to California to settle there. The events that led up to this mass killing, this massacre, are complex and are detailed in our first book on the subject, Massacre Mountain Meadows. I was impressed when I was reading that first book, when you were pointing out the context that people don't realize. You repeatedly said this was a source of tension, but it was not a justification for the mass murders. There is no justification. As Juanita Brooks famously said, even if you were to take all of the rumors about the immigrants, many of which, in fact, were not true, but even if you were to take all of them at face value and assume that they were true, there would still not be cause to murder a single person. And so to have the people in southern Utah react as they did and end up killing 120 men, women, and children, mostly women and children, is a crime of great violence for which there is no justification. You can attempt to understand the circumstances under which it occurred, so you can try to figure out causation, and I think that's useful from a historical perspective to help people understand how human nature can fall into such a you know horrible crime. And it is true, if you study the history of violence, that there are certain factors that tend to work into mass killings globally and throughout time, and many of those factors came to bear in in the case of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So there is some new understanding that can come from studying it, but no one should attempt to justify the horrific violence that occurred as part of this crime. Now, in this recent volume, Mountain Meadows Massacre, Collected Legal Papers, You wouldn't think that one would sit down and be fascinated. It's more of a reference book for researchers, but actually when I opened it, I became engrossed so much that my husband came by and said, you're not actually reading that page by page, are you? And I said, shush, I am. I am fascinated because I think like other members, I had always quite easily been able to compartmentalize the Mountain Meadows Massacre by saying this is a group of isolated people. The general church leadership in Salt Lake was not involved. It was an anomaly created by a specific sort of events. But then when you read the legal papers and you see the days after, what things start to unfold as it sinks in what has just happened and the cover-ups that start happening and when U.S. officials start finding out and how church officials start finding out, it actually became more disturbing to me and more difficult to compartmentalize as I saw this small group of perpetrators and then a whole community that seemed to cover up what was happening. In a recent book event, you said that studying the Mountain Meadows Massacre is a tricky subject. All of the people involved 
tried to cover it up. One has to sort through the lies and the doctored materials. Okay, we're reading this as members of the LDS Church. We believe in being honest, true to taste. How do, I mean, is there a way to process this? I think there is. Historians of violence and sociologists who study violence have frequently pointed out that as human beings, we like to think of ourselves as somehow far apart from those who could commit such horrific atrocities, when in reality, the distance between those who commit such crimes and ordinary people going about their daily life, like you and me, may not be as great as we want to think. I remember one person writing about violence was talking about how in our world of television, we like to see mugshots of criminals on the nightly news that show those criminals after they've been arrested when frequently they're bruised, they're battered, their hair's messed up, and they just look criminal. That's a way of having our minds essentially say there's a huge gulf betwixt me and a criminal, that I could never be like them. But what makes the study of the Mount Meadows Massacre so reflective is that these were people, many of whom were basically good human beings going about their day-to-day business, and they started down a slippery slope. And as they started down that slippery slope as a, a group, there weren't enough people who stepped up and said, this isn't a good idea, we shouldn't go this direction. Again, historians of violence and sociologists who study violence point out that if there are a few people, sometimes only one, who steps forward and says, this is not good, what we're doing is not right, that often you can start a conversation that will reverse events that would otherwise lead to a mass killing. In this case, what makes it so difficult is that you can watch step by step as these people go down this slippery slope that leads many otherwise good people to commit unthinkable violence. And what makes the study of this subject so tricky, as I said in that earlier interview, was that because you had, in many cases, ordinary people who engaged in this violence, there was a kind of morning after effect when people woke up and basically couldn't believe they had done what they did. And so they all had to try to justify this to themselves for their own personal ability to live with with themselves, to their family members, to their neighbors, to their friends, and to the public at large. That led to a lot of lying, to a lot of fabrication, and to a lot of altering of documents. Let me just give you a few examples. If you take the list of those who were involved in the Mount Meadows Massacre, as we provide it in an appendix in Massacre at Mount Meadows, and you go through the records of those individuals or to their families, you will frequently see purported alibis. Oh, I was not able to go because I didn't want to go, and therefore my family and or I heated up some bricks in the oven and put the bricks in bed with me, causing me to sweat profusely when they came to get me, and it looked like I had a bad fever, and therefore I did not go. I mean, some of these alibis are really, really elaborate. Or I managed to escape the militia muster by jumping into a pond and breathing through a reed. There are a few cases in which these alibis may be true. The vast majority of them are not true. They're simply after-the-fact excuses made by participants to try to mask their participation. Similarly, there is a terrible dearth of contemporaneous documents relating to these events. There were minutes kept of the meeting 
in which the initial attack on the company was discussed. Those minutes were later, as best we can tell, destroyed. There were a set of minutes kept of a local congregation in Harmony that were taken by one of John D. Lee's family members and that today are at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. Many scholars operate off of a typescript for those minutes, but if you operate off the typescript, you're only going to see part of the picture. We actually had a a researcher go down to look at the original at the Huntington Library, and what we discovered is that there are some systematic deletions, tears or cuts that have been made to the document in order to change the reader's view of what actually happened. Also, there's a surprising absence of journals from the week of the massacre. I think these journals were either not kept, or in the case where they were kept, that they were destroyed or hidden, or in some cases had the pages torn out of them or were rewritten in order, once again, to try to create a better picture of what went on than you might think. And then when it comes to the legal documents and the witnesses, what you notice is that a lot of people are trying to, even if they want to talk about someone else's involvement, they often want to either hide their own involvement, or in the case, for example, of Philip Klingensmith, star witness at the the first of the John D. Lee trials, he tried to make his participation look humanitarian. When pressed, he acknowledged that he fired his weapon, and therefore implicit in that statement was that he was a killer. But he tried to emphasize this idea that that he was there to gather up the children who survived and to, to deliver them to families who would take care of them. That image of himself as a humanitarian just doesn't square with the total picture which shows him as a killer. So yes, it's very tricky to study the subject. That's why we gathered so much information from so many places and took all of that information and triangulated on the data in order to be able to tell what information was a lie, what information was likely true. Okay, there's this massacre. State President Haight opens the message from Brigham Young that says, don't kill these people, let the wagon train through. And it's too late. What happens after this point? According to John D. Lee's account, and I I am somewhat hesitant here because John D. Lee's published memoir, Mormonism Unveiled, shows signs of having been doctored by his lawyer for the purposes of increasing the sales since the lawyer's fees were being paid out of the sales of this book. But at least according to what we read in Mormonism Unveiled, once Isaac Haight got that letter, he called John D. Lee and said, we're in a muddle. Having received a direction from Brigham Young saying, let this company go, Isaac C. Haight and John D. Lee and William Dame had to try to figure out a way to explain what had happened in southern Utah to Brigham Young and to the public generally. So one of the first things that you might notice about the report that they made on this was that they sent John D. Lee up alone to deliver the report. John D. Lee asks in his memoirs, he asks, hey, why don't you go up? Because Haight was the one that drew John D. Lee into it. And Haight basically said, you can, you can talk to him better than I could on this subject. He doesn't arrive in Brigham Young's office until September the 29th, 1857. That's 18 days after this massacre occurred. But when he arrived, he arrived in a breathless condition as though he were an express writer bringing up the latest news. One of the things that these leaders of the massacre did was to change the date of the massacre in people's minds so that it appeared it had just recently occurred and that John D. Lee's arrival in Salt Lake City truly was an express when, in fact, it was 18 days after the fact. If church leaders had known it was 18 days after the fact, 
then it would have been very difficult for them to explain why they hadn't reported it earlier. Anyway, this is a very complicated set of events that occurs afterwards, and that's what the second book is about. It, it explains the aftermath of the massacre and events leading up to the indictment of nine people for the massacre, not just John D. Lee, but nine people who were seen as major players in the massacre, although there's some questions on a couple of them why they were indicted. It may well be that they were indicted because the people who were prosecuting the case needed small fish to cop on big fish, and so they gathered some small fish in the net as well in order to get them to try to save themselves by telling what the leaders in the case had done. So it's a very complicated case, a case that's required now you know, a good portion of my life to try to figure out. And it's a case that's it's horrific. Uh, it's a case I don't like to think about too often. Early on when I was doing my work on it, I found myself beginning to zone out and in my mind see myself at the massacre site and wanting to run out into the middle of the, of the group and wave my arms and say, don't do it. I mean, it's a, it's a psychologically very traumatic subject to study. But the trial was 20 years after the event. So let's go back to right after the event. The Mountain Meadows is in a rather remote location. They did try to bury the dead, didn't they? In terms of burying the dead, I think uh, probably the easiest way to describe it is to say they tried to hide the evidence. With these bodies lying out on the surface the day after, a horrible scene presented itself to travelers. This was a remote location, but it was a location that was a common campsite on the southern trail to California. So there would be many, many people passing through this site over the years. And so the immediate reaction of those who carried out the massacre was not to give these people a decent burial. It was rather to try to hide the evidence. So they dragged the bodies to ravines and dumped them in ravines and dumped dirt on top of them, gave them a very superficial burial. It was a burial that was very inadequate before long, Coyotes and other animals dug up the bodies and and gnawed on them and scattered body parts all you know for over a mile in various directions, and that created another horrific scene in which you had body parts and bones and skulls and parts of people's clothing, particularly women's and children's clothing and women's hair tresses lying on the surface, tangling in sagebrush, getting caught with tumbleweeds. Uh, It just was a horrific killing field. So people who passed through there until 1859 saw the evidence of the atrocity. Finally, a military group that came down from Salt Lake City to meet an Army paymaster sent up from California came through and did some burials. Jacob Hamlin, who was not present at at the massacre, but who occupied the Mountain Meadows as a as a kind of cattle ranch on behalf of the Paiute people, he and one of his workers went out and buried some of the bones in 1858 after the flesh had gone off of them. This army group came through from Salt Lake City and buried some others, and then the man who brought up the army paymaster from Southern California the leader of the army from there, he organized basically a group that spread out across the mountain meadows with a wagon, and they walked the length of the mountain meadows, picked up bones, put them in the wagon, and had their own burials that occurred there. It remained for roughly a year and a half a horrific killing field where evidence of the crime was apparent in spite of the preliminary efforts of the killers to try to hide what they had done. It was mentioned 
in the papers that news of the massacre spread rapidly. Apparently, members of the wagon train would be missed, of course, when they didn't make it to California. But it wasn't till about two years later that the U.S. government sent someone to officially investigate it. You mentioned earlier that Bishop Philip Klingensmith painted himself as a humanitarian. And I had always seen him as such because we know the story of how he took those 17 children and he gave them to people who didn't have children to rear. And I had always thought that that was a humanitarian thing. But this Indian agent, Jacob Forney, who comes in two years later, finds that obscene because the children should have been returned to their families in Arkansas. And I had never thought of that before. And that is kind of this start of this horror on the part of the U.S. at this great massacre that they know that somehow the Mormons were involved in. Can you take us up to that point? Sure. I think one of the sad ironies of the massacre is that the decision to carry out the final massacre, the event in which most of the people were killed, was based on this mistaken notion that because those people knew the attack had been carried out not by local Indians, which the planners hoped would be the conclusion, but in fact by local settlers joining in the massacre, they felt that if they massacred all the rest of the people, they could keep that information from leaking out and somehow portray it as an Indian massacre. And, and here's one of, the, one of the ironies is that they thought they could actually hide it. And in fact, they couldn't. They couldn't ever hide it. And the second irony, sad irony, is that they took this crime against a group of emigrants passing through the territory and they compounded it by making it a crime against the local Paiute people, some of whom had been involved in the massacre, but only through the persuasion of the local settlers, who up to that point had befriended and been part of the local southern Utah community, often performing labor services and other things for those people. So you had, you had a crime against the immigrants who came through and a crime against the Paiute people by trying to make it look as though they were the sole perpetrators of the crime and by exaggerating their role considerably. The reality is that the majority of the Paiutes who were living in the area had nothing to do with the massacre. And yet those who told the story later on would give you the impression that there were far more people from of native background at the massacre than in fact we believe there were. If you take all of that and then say, well, where did all of that lead? How did the information get out? The information about the massacre got out fairly quickly, and people reached the conclusion that it was carried out by the local Mormon settlers and not by Indians, or at least not exclusively by Indians. They reached that conclusion very, very quickly. Word got down to Southern California within just a short period of time. From there, it went to the eastern United States, probably by boats that then got the news across they're down to Panama and then over Panama into the into the Gulf of Mexico and it was carried up and in a surprisingly short time word reaches the east coast of the United States people in Arkansas become aware of it they become aware that their family members are missing and they began to make appeals to their congressional representatives for an investigation the congressional representatives began to contact 
the federal offices that seem to have any kind of relevance to this and begin to make requests that things happen. And so things actually happen very, very quickly, but it takes until the end of the Utah War for Jacob Forney to come into the Salt Lake Valley in in the middle of 1858 and for some of these other people who were investigating it to begin to carry out their investigations. So I mentioned that I had pulled my family. One of those people was my 17-year-old son who recently took AP history. And I said, so how did they explain it? And he said, xenophobia. And I thought, well, that was part of it. Last week, I interviewed Paul Reeve about the Council of 50 Minutes, which you also contributed to that recent anthology about that. And there was a lot of animosity and a lot of bitterness because of how the saints had been treated when they were part of the United States. They moved to Utah Territory hoping they'd be in Mexico, and soon it became U.S. Territory again. Brigham Young did not have a great relationship with federal officials that escalated to the Utah War eventually. The U.S. didn't really feel great about the Mormons because of Brigham Young's rumors of polygamy and his theodemocracy. They thought it should be more democracy than theocracy. So we have these kind of tensions here. Jacob Forney comes in. He tries to figure out, oh, my goodness, why did they do this? He thought maybe it was the company's wealth. Reading on further, that clearly probably was not a motivator, maybe just kind of a fringe benefit they took advantage of later. The thing that surprised me is just two years after this massacre, okay, you have John D. Lee's trial that everybody knows about 20 years later, but two years later, they're really close to getting the perpetrators. Judge John Cradlebaugh comes in. What happens to make this a bust? The challenge with prosecuting the massacre early on was that there were tensions between the federal officials, and there were tensions between the federal officials and church leaders. And the totality of those circumstances ends up stopping the work that's done. On the one hand, you have cover-up, you have efforts on the part of people to try to obfuscate what was done. On the other hand, you have people like Judge John Cradlebaugh, who's one of the early heroes in trying to investigate the massacre, who unfortunately becomes somewhat overzealous in his efforts and eventually gets called off by Washington for overreaching. As a judge, he was supposed to be a dispassionate arbiter of right and wrong crime and and innocence. Uh, In fact, he became so enthusiastic about prosecuting this, and I, and I can certainly understand his enthusiasm. This was a horrific crime. He wanted to get to the bottom of it. But he let that enthusiasm overcome his better judgment and said and did some things that were represented to Washington as being over the top. He and another judge tried to explain themselves to Washington, but on balance, the person writing back to them said, look, the president of the United States has given you every benefit of the doubt on every issue, and still you were over the top. Intriguingly, about that same time, after the Cradlebaugh investigation and an effort to, to get to the bottom of this, there's a second opportunity in mid-year by Judge Eccles, the third of the federal judges, to look at the case as well. A lot of the things that Judge Cradlebaugh said he didn't have, Judge Eccles did have. 
Cradleboss said that he had a grand jury that was biased because it was made up of Latter-day Saints and that they would not indict. In the case of Judge Eccles' court, Judge Eccles' court was held a little bit further south, and the grand jury was made up of people that would not have fallen into that same category as what Judge Cradlebaugh described. In the case of the Cradlebaugh court, many people complained that the federal prosecutor was soft. In the case of the Eccles court, the substitute federal prosecutor who stepped in when the original prosecutor went east, he was not soft. He later started an anti-Mormon newspaper. They had a prosecutor who was tough. They had a grand jury that was not made up of Latter-day Saints who wouldn't be willing to indict their fellow church members. And they had a judge who certainly was not soft as well. And yet that did not get anywhere either. So why not? Well, Alexander Wilson, who was the federal prosecutor in the, in the Cradlebot court, he wrote to Washington. He essentially said, you know, there's a little bit of evidence that we've been able to uncover, but not enough to really go forward with this case. He was probably right. You know, as one who's trained in the law and who studied criminal law and criminal procedure and am familiar with what prosecutors typically do, most prosecutors in the United States today do not take cases forward until they feel confident that they can win the cases. That's why many of the best prosecutors have extremely high conviction rates. Many prosecutors have conviction rates of over 90%, some even higher. And that's because they make sure that they have all of the evidence necessary to convict the criminal before they go forward. Alexander Wilson essentially said, we don't have that level of evidence yet, and I think that was correct at the time. That's why the Eccles Court, that had all the advantages the Cradlebaugh Court did not have, was not able to bring a better result than the Cradlebaugh Court. They simply didn't get anywhere. Now, I'm not saying that the evidence didn't exist. The evidence clearly existed. But it took some time to gather together that evidence. And unfortunately, you then had the Civil War that interfered. Intriguingly, in 1859, Brigham Young met with Alexander Wilson and said that let's go ahead and have this trial in southern Utah in federal court. He said, I'll make sure that all of the people who have been accused are there. Brigham Young wanted to get it cleaned up. He wanted to to have it over because he knew it would be hanging over his head if that didn't happen. Unfortunately, the federal judges decided they did not want to go that direction. And the governor of the territory at the time, Governor Cumming, eventually chalked that up to the political tensions that existed between the moderate federal officials and the more aggressive federal officials at the time. John D. Lee breathlessly enters Brigham Young's office in September of 1857, tells Brigham Young probably that these group of Paiutes have slaughtered this wagon train. It's an awful massacre. Does Brigham Young believe him, or do we know? To understand how Brigham Young thought on that occasion, in order to try to get inside his head because he didn't leave details of this, we have to look at the available evidence. One bit of evidence we do have is that Isaac Haight sent a letter to Brigham Young in which he essentially requested the authority to chastise this group of immigrants who had come to southern Utah. Brigham Young wrote back and said, let them go if at all possible, and if you do attack them, warn them first. This idea of warning them first was something that Brigham Young himself had pondered at the beginning of the Utah War. He knew that theologically there was a commandment not to kill and that to get past that commandment, to be able to participate in a war, 
and shed human blood, there would have to be sufficient justification. So in his own journal, he basically says, if it ever came to that point, I want to make sure that I warn my enemy first before we shed any blood in this conflict. So Brigham Young wanted to make certain that whatever happened in southern Utah, there would either be an opportunity for these people to just go on, or if not, that they would be sufficiently warned ahead of time. Well, if you're Brigham Young and you have that experience, a letter from Isaac Haight and your answer to him, and then the next thing you hear is rumors on the streets of Salt Lake City that this company has been massacred. The immediate question you're going to have when a John D. Lee walks in the door is, what happened? So the conversation that ensued must have been one in which Brigham Young's saying, all right, you know, I sent the letter down to Isaac Haight, and then I hear that this massacre occurs. What happened? Well, Haight and Dame and Klingensmith and Lee did what they could basically to say, wasn't our fault. Wasn't our fault. This was an Indian massacre. And in order to make that excuse, they had to vilify the immigrants. They had to dehumanize them and make it look as though they were very, very terrible. So they gathered up all of the rumors they could about this immigrant company. And some of the rumors we think were probably not even related to this company, maybe related to other companies. But they took all of those and painted a picture of this immigrant company as a group of terrible people. Well, as Juanita Brooks said, I mentioned earlier, even with that, there would be no justification for a massacre. But the story that they wanted the world to believe was that these people had committed such atrocities that local native peoples took justice into their own hands and massacred them. According to Wilford Woodruff, a later recollection, he said Brigham Young asked on that occasion, were any white men involved? Which is a natural question Brigham Young would ask because he'd gotten this letter from Isaac Haight, so he wanted to know, were any white men involved? To which John D. Lee said no. Lee basically says, look, you know, I, it's my fault. I'm the one who is responsible for, you know, as the federal farmer to the Indians down there, and these people just kind of got out of hand. And in sort of taking more responsibility upon himself, as he later said, he contributed to this idea that it was Indians who carried it out. After he excommunicated, he asked Brigham Young, why are you excommunicating me now when you've known about this for such a long period of time? And he says that in his journal that Brigham Young basically says, I didn't know the details until recently. Well, those details were quite important. You know, understanding the story as John D. Lee first told it compared to what Brigham Young learned later makes a difference in terms of how he treats John D. Lee. Some of the main actors in this massacre were both civic and religious leaders. I've never lived in a theo-democracy, so I wonder how that dynamic would have affected the people who ended up following them. Early Utah was a theo-democracy. It was a church and state were, in effect, mixed together during that time period. And I think it was often difficult for people living in that theodemocracy to distinguish between what was a civic matter and what was a religious matter. And I think that confusion played a role in the massacre. I think there were people who were asked to do things as part of a militia muster who just assumed that because the person who called the muster was also a, a church leader, that therefore it must be right. They would have done better under those circumstances to have gone with what they themselves felt was right under the circumstances, listening to their consciences. For those you know, who are Latter-day Saints and, and believe in a, in a Holy Spirit that prompts you to do right and to do what's wrong, they would have done better to listen to what the Spirit told them than to jump to conclusions about whether a militia muster that was ordered by a 
militia major who was also a stake president was a, an inspired decision. Brigham Young kept saying he didn't know the details right away, but they weren't excommunicated till years and years, I want to say over a decade later. Why so long? Why such a hands-off approach? And did that dynamic, according to your research, play at all into the massacre? Well, you've asked several questions there. Let me go through these sort of one at a time. First of all, in terms of the church reaction, what Brigham Young hears from John D. Lee and what he subsequently hears from Jacob Hamlin is different. And in order to try to figure out who is right here, who is telling him the true story, he sends some members of the Quorum of the Twelve into southern Utah after the army arrives and things settle down in Salt Lake. He sends them down to investigate. They carry out their investigation, and at first they seem to be persuaded to the John D. Lee version of the story, that this is an Indian massacre. But then as they proceed back through Parowan, they end up in a long church court for William Dame, who turns out to be the military leader who gives Haight the permission to carry out the final massacre. Now, the minutes of the church court survive. They at least initially aren't about William Dame as a participant in the massacre. They're about a lot of the things that he'd done over the years as a stake president that a lot of his, uh, his church members were upset about. But there's at least one item on the list of details that suggests that the conversation would lead into the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And we know from Isaac Haight's very spotty journal that he gets notice to come up and testify at the event. So not recorded in the minutes, but we think easily seen between the lines of the minutes and Isaac Haight's journal is this idea that the view that John D. Lee had, the story that he told, is beginning to unravel inside this Parowan church court proceeding. And then Lee gets summoned to go to an, a, what's billed as an inquisition before a couple of members of the Twelve, and he comes back in a very, very bad mood. So it appears that what happens is that William Dame eventually gets somehow implicated. He claims innocence and points to hate. Hate, in turn, points to Lee, and Lee, consistent with what he says later, takes too much upon himself. He takes the hit for the team and saying, yeah, you know, I, I shouldn't have. But he doesn't, they don't go into a lot of detail about what his role actually is. The report that goes back to Salt Lake is that there were white men on the ground, but we're not sure in exactly what role or what they were doing. So the story begins to unravel in 59. It's also following this event that Brigham Young decides to cooperate with federal officials and have a trial that never comes to pass because of the tensions between the government officials. Then, of course, you have the, the Civil War. During the Civil War, according to one reminiscent account, Brigham Young has a confrontation with John D. Lee in 1863. Well, what happens in 1863? Cradlebaugh ends up in Congress representing Nevada, and he presents a report he doesn't actually read it on the floor, but he has it published. And a copy of that published report goes back to Salt Lake, and Brigham Young gets a copy of it, and he reads it. And according to that report, Lee plays a pretty significant role. And according to this reminiscent account, Brigham Young and Lee have a confrontation, and Lee denies everything. And Brigham Young excoriates him and then goes away. Well, Brigham Young would often berate people and then soften afterwards and in this particular case, it looks like he got mad at John D. Lee, thought he was probably guilty, but Lee denies it. And over time, 
Brigham Young, it appears, starts to give him the benefit of the doubt again. And it's not until 1870, when Brigham Young has a conversation with Nephi Johnson, that Brigham Young basically says, all right, Johnson was actually there. Unlike Hamlin, who was not there, he has Johnson, who was there, who tells a far different story than the one Lee told to him. And it's very apparent to him that Lee has lied to him. It's immediately after that conversation with Nephi Johnson that a decision is made to excommunicate Isaac Haight and John D. Lee and one other person who may or may not have had a role in the massacre itself, but we know was responsible for at least one other extra-legal killing. So you have this uh, excommunication that occurs, and I might just say that there were people who for a long time, Juanita Brooks among them, who believed that the excommunication was a sham because Juanita had never been able to find a local church record of his excommunication. The reason she wasn't able to find a local record of the excommunication was because it didn't occur locally. Between sessions of General Conference in October of 1870, First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve met and collectively excommunicated those three individuals. So there was no record in the local unit records, and the minutes of the Quorum of the Twelve for that time period, along with all the other minutes of the Quorum of the Twelve, burnt in 1883 when the Council House went up in smoke. The Council House was one of the most significant early church and public buildings in Utah. It was on the southwest corner of South Temple and Main Street, and it was right next door to a Photoshop, C.R. Savage's Photo Bazaar. And, of course, the Photoshop had a lot of chemicals in it, and those chemicals combusted one day in 1883 and took down the photo bazaar, and also the council house next to it. So unfortunately, the minutes, the, the original minutes of the excommunication burned up. But we know from three journal accounts of participants in the excommunication, we know that it occurred and, and exactly what happened in a summary form. What did you have LaJean Carruth do for your project? Okay, let me talk about LaJean Purcell Carruth. When I was an undergraduate at BYU, I was working on a university scholars project a project for the honors program that would allow me to graduate with the highest honors that the honors program offered. And as part of that, I was transcribing the journal of one of my ancestors, and I came across what looked like shorthand. So I talked to people about transcribing that. My advisor at the time for this project was James B. Allen, who was the chairman of the history department at BYU and a former assistant church historian. It was either from him or someone else that I got the name of this woman who had this wonderful capability for transcribing early shorthand. And so I sent her some of this early jottings from my ancestor's journal to transcribe. That's how I first became aware of her. She was already at that time, which would have been the early 1980s, she was already developing a reputation for being a phenomenal person to transcribe both Pittman and Taylor shorthand as well as the Deseret Alphabet. When we were doing this research on the legal documents, we knew we had these two transcripts that had been made, the Rogerson transcript and the Borman transcript. But we also became aware that there were original shorthand notebooks. These are the notebooks in which the reporters jotted their shorthand. And it didn't take a lot of intelligence to figure out that if we could get those original shorthand notebooks transcribed and compare them to the later transcripts, we might see a difference between what was actually said and what was put into the later transcript. So we had LeGene do that. So we ended up with four different versions of the trials. We had the Borman transcript, and we had the underlying shorthand transcribed by LeGene. 
we had the Rogerson transcript and the underlying shorthand transcribed by her. So we had, for parts of the trials, four different versions of what happened. And we lined all of those up in columnar form. You can see those lined up documents. There's something like 3,400 or 3,500 PDF files that we have put on a website for the books called mountainmetalsmassacre.org. If you go into there, you can see these pages of the trial transcript and yourself go down and figure out what was put into the Borman and Rogerson transcript and what was originally recorded by Patterson, who was the court reporter for Borman, and Rogerson, who was the church court reporter who was there. Making that kind of comparison allows you to draw conclusions about what was actually said compared to what was later transcribed. So it's a wonderful tool that we've developed and now shared with the world that lets people figure out for themselves what went on at the two trials of John D. Lee. Although I must say that for the second trial, there's a lot missing. You once mentioned your desire to find evidence when you're doing research to like peeling an onion. So that perhaps explains a little bit the time between the publishing of Massacre at Mountain Meadows, desiring to have a new trial transcript, and then the release of your new book at the end of 2018. Can you share that metaphor with our listeners? Sure. You know, I spent three decades of my life as a historian, and before that was trained as a lawyer. And both historians and lawyers pay a lot of attention to evidence. So people who work with me know that I'm generally not satisfied with superficial evidence. For example, if there's a typescript of something, if I have the resources, I like to go find the original from which the transcript was made and look at the original instead of just the transcript, because often things have been mistranscribed, or as I mentioned in the case of the Minutes for Harmony, things have been taken out or added. And that's what I like to do. I like to take the onion and peel back layer by layer by layer to get down to the most original evidence that exists on something so that I can develop greater and greater certainty about the events. I think that's what historians have to do if they're to reduce uncertainty to certainty if that's possible. And one thing I will say about history as a profession, there are many people who want to know the absolute answers to some questions. Yeah, because history is based on evidence, and evidence doesn't always survive. It's sometimes not possible to give a definitive answer to some questions. We can speak in terms of likelihoods. We can speak in terms of causation. But sometimes the evidence just hasn't survived to make firm conclusions on some subjects. As one historian famously said in a book, and I'm paraphrasing here, of all the things that happen, only a few are recorded. Of all the records that are made, only a few survive. Of all the surviving records, only a few are found, or a limited number are found. And of those, only a certain number are read. And of those that are read, only a certain number are remembered. And then that's what you have left over to interpret. So you can see how the event itself can be much different from the evidence that survives. What is your takeaway from your studies in the Mountain Meadows Massacre? Well, I pondered that question a lot. There are a number of lessons, I think, that can be learned from it. First of all is that otherwise good people placed in the right circumstances can end up committing an atrocity unless they make decisions that pull them off of the slippery slope back onto firmer ground. And I know that none of us wishes to think that we could be in that spot, but I think one of the most sobering 
reflections that we can get from studying a subject like the Mount Meadows Massacre is that we all need to be vigilant, that we don't say or do anything that harms another creature, another human being. It's easy in today's world of social media and the echo chambers that we create to start a rumor or repeat information that may not be completely verified and in the process hurt another person's reputation or actually result in physical harm to someone. I think we need to be very cautious about what we do with what we know or think we know. I think that's one of the lessons we can learn from this. Second lesson, which might be of interest to people, is that for the most part, during the deliberations leading up to the Mount Meadows Massacre, whenever a council met, a large group of people with varied opinions, and they had the opportunity to discuss the topic in open conversation with all opinions represented, in most cases, they made the right decision. The wrong decisions, the ones that were the worst decisions leading to the massacre, were made by people outside of those councils, deciding to disregard the advice of the council and instead do what seemed expedient at the time to a smaller number of people. So I, I believe that it's easier to come to good decisions and easier to come to a proper understanding when we get a lot of people involved, lots of different voices weighing in on a subject so that we can examine it in all of its aspects and not just one. I think that the fanaticism that led to the massacre resulted from an echo chamber of voices, a small group of fanatics who all felt the same way about something with no countervailing voices in there to slow them down or point them in another direction. Thank you, Richard, for sharing your expertise and your time and your evaluation today. Thank you for the invitation. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.